The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church. Uh, Glad you're here with us today. We're continuing our study of this uh, epistle of 1 John. Now, as I've mentioned week after week, I understand this book of John to be written to believers for the purpose of helping them appreciate and deepen their fellowship with Yahweh. And that's really important to us because it affects our lives in the sense that joy is a byproduct of fellowship with Christ. So the more you fellowship, the greater your joy. So if you see someone who doesn't have a lot of joy, they don't have a lot of fellowship either. Okay? You're walking with Christ, and that's what you see in Paul's life. You know, do whatever you want to Paul. He's just happy. He's praising God because he's in fellowship. You know, and it doesn't affect him. Now, this section that we began last week, chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, contains three claims to intimate knowledge of God, expressed by three Greek participles, whoever says at the beginning of verses... Four, he says, whoever says, then six, whoever says, then again in nine, we'll look at nine today, whoever says. Each of these participles reflects directly or indirectly what the author believed the cessationists falsely claimed and is followed by a direct rebuttal or counterstatement. So we looked at the two of these last week, whoever says statements. Uh, First one was in verse four, whoever says, I know him. Now, we've gone over this a bunch of times, but I'm going to keep going over this. To know Him, he's not saying, he's not referring to salvation here. Know Him is synonymous with fellowship. It's synonymous with being in the light. It's synonymous with abiding in Him. The person that says, I'm abiding in Him. I have an intimate relationship with Him and does not keep His commandments is what? A liar. Well, that's strong language, isn't it? Yeah, you're, you know, if you say you're walking in fellowship with God, but you're not obeying Him, you're a liar. The behavior of the cessationist is depicted as ongoing disobedience to God's commands. And we see here that knowing God and keeping His commandments are inextricably linked. John states that keeping His commandments is one way in which we know that we know Him. Now, this verse has caused a lot of debate among people, because it says here that, you know, about keeping the commandments. So the question come up, what commandments? The Ten Commandments? Do we obey the Pentateuch? Do we obey the Levitical laws, the rituals, the ceremonies of the Old Covenant? What commandment are we to keep? Well, let's take the opportunity to kind of make this clear here about the commandments. All right, let's go back to Yeshua's words in Matthew chapter 5. Yeshua says this, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, people he's writing to, you, okay? Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, the first question we have to ask here, what does he mean by the law and the prophets? Well, that indicates that the Lord is speaking here of the whole Tanakh, what people call the Old Testament. All right? If you trace those terms throughout your Bible, you'll find that wherever this expression is used, it includes the entire Tanakh. 
So what is, it, what is an iota or a dot? Well, an iota would be like an apostrophe, okay? Just a small little thing. And a dot is actually the projecting foot, like, you know, when you make a T, that little curl at the bottom, the projecting foot would, would be the dot, all right? So they're just little tiny things. And so the message here is not even the smallest part of the law will be abolished until heaven and earth passes away. Now the phrase, until heaven and earth pass away, refers to the duration of the Tanakh's authority. Alright, so the whole Tanakh is in authority until heaven and earth pass away. So Yeshua is saying that not a single item of the law, the Tanakh, will ever change until heaven and earth pass away. Now if heaven and earth has not passed away, then I want to ask you a question. When's the last time you offered a burnt offering? Never? Hmm. That's a problem, right? Well, let's say you wanted to. Let's say you had the animal. Let's say you, 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 know, you wanted to make the sacrifice. Where would you find a priest? See, without a priest, you can't offer this sacrifice. Okay? A Levitical priest. So let me ask you. How many times have you observed the Feast of Yahweh? You know, three of the seven feasts are pilgrims' feasts. You know what that means? What's it mean? You've got to go to Jerusalem. Pilgrim feast, because you have to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to keep the feast. So when's the last time you were in Jerusalem keeping a feast? Well, that's a problem, because Yeshua said all the law is in force until heaven and earth passed away. So either all this is binding on us, or heaven and earth have passed away. How many of you did any work yesterday? <laughs> Stan, don't put your hand up. You know you didn't do it. <laughs> I washed my car yesterday. That's about the only work I did yesterday. But, you know, if you worked yesterday, you're in sin, and you should be put to death according to the Scriptures. Unless... Heaven and earth have passed away. See, if we understand heaven and earth in this passage to be physical, as most people do, then the law is still in effect. Every bit of it. And we're all in big trouble. If we understand heaven and earth figuratively, then it's possible that the, they have passed away along with the law. See, the passing away of heaven and earth is another way to speak of the end of the Old Covenant. A person who is familiar with the phraseology of the Tanakh knows that the dissolution of the Mosaic economy and the establishment of the Christian is often spoken of as removing the old heavens and earth and the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. Look what Yeshua said in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So believers, we are to live by the words of Yeshua, which will never pass away. Yeshua consummated the new covenant, listen, at His second coming in AD 70. If He has not come, the heaven and earth has not passed away. If the heaven and earth has not passed away, we're all under the Mosaic economy. It should be stoned to death. But the old has passed away. We live in the new covenant age. I think most people understand that. They just don't understand how they got there. So the commandments that John talks about are the commands of Christ. 
We don't need to go back into the Old Covenant and try to figure out which one of these we have to keep, which one we just have to go to the commands of Christ and know how we are to live. And it's going to get even simpler. We'll boil it down even more all right, as we go along here. Last week we looked at the second whosoever says participle in verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him. Again, that's the same thing as saying has fellowship with him. That's the same as saying walking in the light. That's the same as saying knowing him. Abiding in Him. Now we said last week that this abiding language comes from John 15, where Yeshua tells those who are clean. In verse 15.3, He says, Now you are clean through the word which I've spoken to you. Talking to His disciples. You're clean. In other words, He uses clean in the sense of salvation. You've been saved. And then in verse 4, He says, Abide in Me. So it must be something different than salvation. It's believers who are commanded to abide. Now, I said last week that abides in Him means exactly the same thing as being in fellowship with Him, as walking in the light, as keeping His commands, as knowing Him, as being in Him. They are all one in the same experience. And listen, almost all scholars agree that these terms are all synonymous. But most will say they are synonymous for salvation. Now, that's, i got a problem with that. Because again, John 15... Now you are clean. Abide in me. So he's saying, now you're saved. Be saved. The what? Come on. It makes no sense at all. These terms are synonymous. They're synonymous for being in a a close, intimate relationship with God. He's writing to Christians. Telling them how to live in fellowship. He's not telling unbelievers how to get saved. He's not, as most people say, this is not a test to see who's a believer. People, that's not our job to run around and examine everybody's life and say, look what they did. I don't think they're Christian. You know? Because, I mean, we, our standards are really messed up at times, okay? If someone says something to us we don't like, you don't love me. You hate your brother. You're, you're not a Christian. Write you off. See how simple that is? We can judge really easy, can't we? In chapter 2, 3-6, through six, John spoke of obedience to the commandments in a general way for us to test ourselves. Not to see if we're Christians, but to see if we are in fellowship with God. Then in chapter 2, verse 7-11, through 11, he goes on to apply the test of obedience more specifically to the area of love. If Yeshua's life, and especially His death, epitomized love, then those who claim to abide in Him ought to walk as He walked which means we're to walk in love as he walked in love. Now, in verse 7 and 8, John addresses his readers directly and writes about the new commandment. These verses are transitional. They're moving the readers from the general requirement of obedience to God's commands in verses 3 through 6 to the specific obligation to love fellow believers in verses 9 through 11. Let's look at verse 7. He says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment. And then in the very next verse he says, at the same time, it's a new commandment. (laughs) So it's an old new commandment. A new old commandment. The fact that John begins to talk about love and hate in verse 9-11 through suggests that the commandment in view here, in verse 7 and 8, is the love commandment of John 13-34. Notice what John writes here. In 2 John 1.5, 
He says, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment. Look at the yellow in both of them. Verse 7, I'm writing you no new commandment. And then the green, but the one we've had from the beginning. Same thing in verse 7, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Obviously, you've got to see the similarity there, right? Well, the thing is, he goes and he it tells us what that is in verse 5, and he says, love one another. So there's no question here, okay? That's the commandment. We're to love one another as I have loved you. That's what he's talking about. That's the old commandment. That's the new commandment. He says in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So Yeshua says it's a new commandment, and so does John in verse 8. So how does John say that it's an old commandment in verse 7? Well, many years later, after Yeshua had said this, John is reminding his community of the command. It's no longer new. It's been over 30 years. This command is something they know. They're familiar with. Hence, it's old. It's been committed to them since the beginning. All right, let's break this verse down. He starts out by saying, beloved. That's a term of endearment. Okay? He often calls his readers by affectionate terms. This term was used of the Father to refer to Yeshua at his baptism. It was used by the Father to refer to the Son at the transfiguration. It's a common designation of the saved in John's letters. He's saying, beloved, those I love, those I care about. Now, if you have the King James Version, or Young's literal, it doesn't have beloved. It has brother. Okay, That follows the Texas Receptus. All right, But, beloved is supported by the Unical Greek manuscripts Aleph, a, B, C, P, the Vulgate, Peshuta, Coptic, and Armenian version. So that's a much stronger uh, textual for beloved there than the King James brother. Uh, I don't want to get into all of it there, but I just think that's important. All right, It's textual criticism. We've got to look at the different manuscripts, find out where's the stronger evidence. I think it's much stronger here. He's beloved. He's talking to believers, and he calls them beloved. It's a term of affection, a term of endearment. He says, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old one. The command to love one another was nothing new. All right? Yahweh taught the Israelites this back in Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then look what he says at the end. I'm Yahweh. What does that mean? I'm God, you better do what I tell you, okay? I'm Yahweh. Do what you're told to do. You know, you could sum up the old commandment law in two commands. We looked at that last week. Ten commandments, make two of them. Love God, love your neighbor. That's all you got to do. See, it's simple, right? You don't have to worry about all these commands. Just love everybody, <laughs> including God. Isn't that any easy? He says, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Now, what beginning is he talking about? This is an imperfect active indicative which refers to the hearer's first encounter with the gospel message. So the beginning in view is the beginning of their Christian life when they first heard the Word of God. And this is confirmed in chapter 2, verse 24, when he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So John is not imposing some novel, new obligation upon his readers. 
He's recalling them to what they've known from the very beginning of their Christian walk. You're to love each other. Okay? He says, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. Now, why is he stressing this idea of an old commandment? Well, I think it's important because he is dealing with, we believe, the docetics. Okay? That's the false teachers he's combating here. And they were parading their knowledge as some new revelation. Hey, we got a new thing that you haven't heard of yet. They claim to have some new truths. And so John counters them by saying, we don't need any new truths. Okay? Rather, the old truth that we learned from the very beginning, that's all we need. See, John's message and emphasis is one that has been from the beginning. It doesn't represent a doctrinal innovation as the teaching of the opponents does. This commandment, is old in comparison to the innovative teaching of the opponents who have not remained in the apostolic teaching but have gone ahead, he says in 2 John 9, becoming progressives in a bad sense. So John was teaching them the same thing that Jude called the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude 1.3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, in other words, Jude says, I sat down to write about salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, the original text puts it, once for all delivered to the saints' faith. Once for all is the Greek word hapox, which refers to something done for all time with lasting results, never needing repetition. People, the Christian faith, the gospel in its entirety, in its, entirety, in its completeness, was in the past at one time delivered to the saints. There's no new faith. And that's why there's no new revelation. That ought to make us really thankful. Okay, If all the Word of God is not contained here, if there's new stuff coming out all the time, then what do we do? We're running around trying to get all the new revelation and see how it checks out with the old revelation and adding addendums and you know all this goes on. And no, it's over. The Christian faith was deposited through the apostles, through those who worked with them in the first century. To anyone or any school of thought or any group that teaches there's something missing from Christianity, there's something the Scriptures don't have, they're wrong. You don't need to go chasing around all these new ideas. The faith that saves the Gospel of Yeshua was delivered in its entirety once. And it hasn't changed. Now, you know, this destroys forever the view that there's any such thing as a latter-day revelation that God's going to add some new revelation. Something that's not already revealed in the Bible. And many have tried to come up alongside, you know, from time to time and make a claim that the original church missed something. Oh, we found something that's not in there that you really have to have. The Judaizers did it. The Gnostics did it. They made those claims. Mormons are making that claim. To, they're latter-day prophets, you know. The JWs make that claim. Christian science makes that claim. Many others have made the claim. But Scripture says all we need to understand came through Yeshua and His apostles once for all. You need to be careful of anyone who comes along and says, I found something new to tell you that's not found in the Scriptures. Now, let me just clarify that because as I think of that, I think, okay, anybody that says there's something new, Here's the key that's not in the Scriptures. Because I found a lot of things new. Okay? I was a Christian for over 20 years when I found something brand new in the Bible. 
And it's that the Lord said He was going to come in the first century, and He did it. And I missed that for 20 years. That was new. It wasn't new to the Bible. It was new to me. And then not that long ago, Jeff comes along with this crazy idea that there's a divine council. And that's new to me. And I'm like, let me see if it's in the Scriptures. And it's in the Scriptures. So, you know, I'm not saying we're not going to be challenged. If you're growing, you're going to be learning. If you're not learning new things, you're not, you're not growing because there's a lot of stuff in that Bible. And that's exciting to me, okay? That book is, I'm never going to get to the point where I ah, got it all figured out. Sit back and rest now. No. You're going to ever be learning, okay? And that's exciting. So it's not the idea you're not going to learn something new. Hopefully you are. It's you're going to not learn anything that's not found in the Scriptures. And that's why we need to know the Bible. So when someone comes with a new idea, we say, that's not in the Bible. We don't need that, okay? All right, verse 8 says, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing you. So John says, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but I'm writing you a new commandment, okay? And the clue to resolving this apparent contradiction is found in John 13, 34, where Yeshua says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I loved you, you also love one another. The clue to resolving this apparent contradiction is here. And as I said earlier, the command to love is not new. So what's new then? What's different about the Lord's command here? The new part is this. Just as I loved you. That could never, they couldn't understand that prior to Christ, could they? No one could love like Christ prior to Christ. See, the sacrificial work of Yeshua on the cross at Calvary is the new standard for the Christian's love for his fellow believers. Okay, everybody got that? That's the standard. Christ. Not looking at your neighbor and say, they don't love too much, I'm better than them, I'm okay. No, Christ is the standard. They had seen His love for them during His entire earthly ministry. He had just given them a picture of washing their feet when He said this, you know, demonstrating service to them. But not only that, but through the cross, once the cross had taken place, then through the depth of that, they would understand what love was. Because that was love, the cross. So the new commandment of Yeshua was the old commandment for the author and his readers. And it was something his readers had heard long ago when they first received the gospel. And he says, which is true in him and in you? What's true? This new commandment. Literally translated, this text would read like this. Which thing is true in him and in you? Now the thing here is the old new commandment. All right? So, the new commandment is true in you and in Him. In him and in you. Alright? Now, true in Him. Who's the Him? It's Christ. Okay? Yeshua. No doubt about that. Who is the you? That's the readers. Those are the people He's writing to. Alright? So, this is true in them. And it's true. Now, the new commandment, He says, is true. And this is the Greek word, aletheis. And the sense of a lay face demanded by this context is something like truly expressed or revealed. Now think about that. The new commandment is expressed, it's revealed in Him and in you. Never has the love been so clearly manifest so as to be seen in its perfection as in Yeshua. So that's the point of the statement, which is true in Him. In other words, there's a level of understanding of the perfection of that love which was never able to be understood before 
until Yeshua. Never has the world seen the perfect love until Yeshua showed up. So the new commandment is revealed in Christ. Now watch. And in you, he says. Referring to the Christian. So Yeshua's obedience to His Father demonstrated it first. And Christian's obedience to God is to be demonstrating it now. It is the fact that believers in Christ share together the same life that makes it possible for us to love one another. And this means loving people who are difficult, disagreeable, hard to live with, <laughs> Everybody loves people that are, you know, that are lovely and get easy to get along with. That's no big deal, okay? It's because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit has been given to us. That's the only way this can be done. It's supernatural, I told you. You can't do this in your flesh. It's not a natural thing. We can do it because of the Spirit of God. We have the power of God in us to be able to love one another. That's what separates Christianity from everything. And the sad thing is, it's not separating Christianity from anything today because believers don't act much different than the unsaved do. He says, because the darkness, he says, is passing away. The true light is already shining. Now, the darkness being passed away, hopefully you see that. That's eschatological. There's something about eschatology here that he's talking about. Now, I'm going to give you a long quote here by Colin Krauss from his commentary because I think it's, it's worth repeating. He says this, In 1 John, the expression darkness is found seven times and in various contexts in which it found in, to indicate that it stands for either sinful behavior or the realm in which sinful behavior predominates. So the darkness is sinful behavior. It's the realm of sinful behavior. All right? He says this, The darkness which the author here says is passing away is the realm and when sinful behavior predominates. predominates. We'll get into that a little more in a second here. He goes on to say, or what he later describes as the world and its sinful desires in 2.17 that's passing away. So the darkness is passing away because the true light has begun to shine. Now the true light here, he says, is best understood to refer to Jesus Christ Himself. In the fourth gospel, Jesus Christ is the true light coming into the world which the darkness cannot overcome, and there can be little doubt that the true light that is already shining in 1 John 2.8 is a reference to Jesus Christ also, even though the explicit identification is not made. When the author says the darkness is passing, he uses the verb parago. This is found a total of ten times in the New Testament. Seven times. He gets a little technical, but this is important, all right? Parago, ten times. He says seven times in the active voice. In the Gospels, where it always refers to someone passing by a person or place. You just kind of pass them by. All right, we got that. Three times elsewhere, once in the active voice and twice in the passive voice, where it refers to something passing away that is coming to an end. The first of these three, intransitive, active voice, is in 1 Corinthians 7.31, where it is the form of this world that is coming to an end. Which in context means that the time has grown short and the end of the present evil age is drawing near. He's not a preterist, okay? But he sees this, okay? The second transitive passive voice is here in 1 John 2.8 
where it is the darkness that's coming to an end. And the third transitive passive voice is in 1 John 2.17, where it's the world and its desires that will come to an end. Then Krauss says this, using present tense verbs in 2.8, the author depicts the passing away of the darkness and the shining of the true light as ongoing events, these concurrent ongoing events, form the context in which the new old command is finding its true expression in the readers. So he says it's ongoing. The light is shining, the darkness is dimming. Okay, this is the transition period he's talking about. When we have two ages, one fading, one growing. It's ongoing. The concurrent ongoing events. All right, This, this 40 year age spanned from Christ to A.D. 70. So he sees the darkness that is passing away to be the realm in which sinful behavior predominates. Now listen, people. We still have sinful behavior outside the realm, okay? But the realm is specifically talked about here, which would be the Old Covenant age. This is very similar, I think, to what Paul says in Romans 13, 10-12. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Paul's talking about love. John's talking about love, Okay? Both, that's the context, both talking about love. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, the old commandment, the new commandment. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Now watch, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. In the second temple period, the Jews distinguished between two types of olam. Olam hazah, this world, Alam Haba, the world to come. The Alam Hazah, or this world, was characterized by the rabbis as darkness, wickedness, sin, and death. It was called night. So night and darkness, you get the connection there, right? Okay, when it's night, it's dark. All right? So there are synonyms there. The Alam Haba, or the world to come, as it was called by the rabbis, was known as a time of joy, peace, light, eternity. It was known as the day. That's what Paul said. The night is, is far gone. It's almost over. The day's at hand. He, equate, he equates their salvation with the day, which is referring to the new covenant. The old covenant was night and was about to pass away. The rabbis connected the olam haba and the resurrection. See, the night is a time when you're sleeping. The day is a time when you rise. All right, so he connected the resurrection. What was passing away was the Old Covenant age. Look what Paul said about that Old Covenant age in 2 Corinthians 3, 6-7. through He says, Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the New Covenant? He's talking in this text about two covenants. Not of the letter, that's the Old Covenant, right? But of the Spirit. The Spirit's the New Covenant. For the letter kills. That's a strange way to talk about the Old Covenant, isn't it? But the Old Covenant did kill. It said, do this or you die. And guess what? You couldn't do it till you die. Okay? For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, we have no question what that is. Okay? That's the Ten Commandments. It's carved in letters of stone. It's a ministry of death. Because that's all it could bring came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. So the Old Covenant age was a ministry of death. It was a ministry that killed. It was coming to an end. And that age would end at the return of Christ when He brought in the consummated New Covenant 
That happened at AD 70. Look what Paul says in Galatians 1.4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Old covenant age. According to the will of our God and Father. So the old covenant age was an evil age. It was an age of darkness, an age of night. It was passing away. Their time, at their time it was passing away and completely passed away in AD 70. All right, let's move on to verse 9. He says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Now, this is the third of John's whosoever says statements. Whoever says he's in the light. To say you're in the light, he says, while having ongoing hatred, indicated by the present tense of the verb to hate, a fellow believer shows you're still in the darkness. So you say you're in the light. To be in the light is to be in fellowship with God. It's to be abiding in Christ. It's to know Him. You say this, but you hate your brother. You're not in the light. You're still in darkness. Hates here. The dictionary defines it, defines it as a feeling of extreme hostility. Do I have to define hate to any of you? Huh? Extreme dislike for another. I'm sure that we all know the feeling. We've been there. It happens on the interstate at times, okay? You hate people you don't even know, okay? You, you just, you know, you could kill these people if you, you know, had that power of laser vision or something. You know, we understand hatred. And we understand it too much. And hatred can be expressed in two different ways, people. It can be active. All right? And then we indulge in malicious talk or injurious actions to another. I mean, you can hate somebody so you punch them in the face, or you shoot them in the face, or you run them over with your car. That's hatred. Okay, that's active hatred. But it can also be expressed passively. It can be expressed by indifference, by coldness, by isolation, unconcerned for somebody else. Someone has said that indifference is the cruelest form of hate. Just don't even care. Just don't even care. Hatred of other Christians is a sure sign that you are not abiding in Christ. Okay? Because, see, we're all united. We're all in Christ. We share the life of Christ. We're brothers and sisters. So if you hate another brother, you're hating a family member. Now listen, I want to say obviously here, but it's not, not obvious to most people. Obviously, genuine Christians have hated other Christians at times in their life, right? If the Bible taught that feelings of hatred were a sure sign of an unsaved condition, then virtually no one would be saved. Okay? We've all had those, you know, like I said, could be on the interstate, could be you didn't get your way at church, you know. I wanted the green carpet and they voted for the brown. Churches have split over stupid stuff like that. I mean, they really have. Does that even matter what color the carpet is? It shouldn't, no. I mean, it's just stupid. Here's the kind of comments that commentators make on this verse. All right? In short, loving another is an essential mark of a true Christian. So if you're not loving, you're not a Christian. That's a little scary, okay? I mean, what, if you're not loving what? 99% of the time? I mean, you've got to give us a little leeway here, right? Does, don't we all have those bad moments? Come on, give us some break, right? 
Another one says, such an attitude of hostility, indifference, or unconcern toward another is a mark of an unregenerate life. In other words, you can't be a Christian if you act like this. And another one says, to be in the darkness is to be unregenerate. Listen, I think it's naive to claim, as these expositors do, that the one who is hating must be an unbeliever. Notice what John says here. He says he hates his brother. What's that imply? John regards the hater and the hated as brothers. He's not hating an unbeliever. He's, not, he's hating a brother. Well, if he's your brother, guess what? You're a Christian. And you're a Christian hating. I don't think that's complicated, but that's what the text says. So these claims to know Him, 2-4, to abide in Him, 2-6, to be in the light, 2-9, all of these claims the author takes to be claims to intimacy with God. Even the last, because as one seven indicates, God is light. And so if you're saying you're in the light, you should be acting like God acts, which would be loving. Look at John 8.12. Again, Yeshua spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now notice that Yeshua didn't say here, whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness. He said, whoever follows me. This is discipleship. They're follower of Christ. They're not going to walk in darkness. To follow him is to be a disciple. It's to abide in him. Let's move on to verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there's no cause of stumble. God himself is described as light in 1.5. We mentioned that in the discussion of 1.5, that this involves the moral realm and constitutes the description of God's character as pure, of completely sinless. To abide in the light means you live your life exposed and open to the Word of God. The Word of God says this, that's what I do. You allow the Word of God to shine into the darkness of your mind and heart and expose and rooting out what's evil. John says that loving your brother is inseparably linked to abiding in the light. The love of Christ was one of self-sacrificing love. Therefore, the proof of abiding in Him would be like you walk as He walked. Your life would be characterized by self-sacrificing love for others. In Him, there is no cause for stumbling. In who? In the person who abides in the light. You understand this. So you turn the lights on in the room, you can see where you're going, you don't trip over the things, right? When the lights aren't on, what happens? You hear people making all kinds of noises in the middle of the night because they stubbed their toe or tripped over something, whatever else, okay? All right. The word stumbling here is the Greek word skandalon, which is translated as a thing which causes stumbling. In the New Testament, skandalon is found 15 times, always with the meaning of causing some sort of harm to a person. It could refer to something that constitutes a temptation to sin or an enticement to apostasy or false belief. And that fits the context here. The cause of stumbling is hatred in the heart. You've got to get what he's saying here. Listen, if you love your brother, you're in the light. There's not going to be a cause for you to stumble. Why? Because you're in the light. And you're not going to trip up. Look at 11.9. Yeshua answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? 
If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. All right? He doesn't stumble because he's in the light. To walk in the day is to walk in the light, which is to love your brother. Now, we'll come back to that thought about stumbling in a second here. But he says in verse 11, But whosoever hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, he doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This repeats and expands what was said in 2.9. This is a present active participle, hates. He just hates them. Colin Krauss, again, writes this. As noted above, in 1 John, the expression darkness stands for either sinful behavior or the realm in which sinful behavior predominates. Here, in 2.11, the word darkness is used with both of these meanings. All right? So, the darkness here. It's the realm of darkness. It's the action of darkness. The hater's sin affects him. Listen. Affects the hater. This is what you have to get here, people. Hatred hurts us as believers. It puts us out of fellowship. All right? The hater's sin affects him in several ways. It places them in the darkness. It says he is in the darkness and he walks in the darkness. He's outside of God's fellowship. He is not abiding in Christ. It, this leads to activity in which there is great spiritual danger. And in which there is a possibility of a fall, the stumbling of verse 10. You're in darkness, so you're going to trip over things, spiritually speaking. There's going to be damage in your life. It also results in mental confusion when you're in the darkness. He doesn't know where he's going. Yeshua said in 12.35, So Yeshua said to him, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. All right. Do you, hopefully you've seen from these scriptures, we're comparing 1 John to John. Does it sound like maybe the same guy wrote these things? Yeah, that's because he did, okay? I don't think there should be a lot of question about that. The Christian who hates his brother, listen, he loses his sense of direction, spiritually speaking. He doesn't know where he's going because hate is blinding him. Believer, I really think because love is so important in Scripture that no course of life is more dangerous for a Christian than one that includes hatred toward another believer. It's a dangerous, dangerous position to be in. You're hating another person for whom Christ died. Another child of God. One commentator writes this. The plain meaning of verse 11 is that if you live for yourself with no regard for others, no self-sacrifice or willingness to be inconvenienced to meet others' need, then you are not saved. Man, people are so quick to tell how you're saved and not saved by the things you're doing. Listen, the text does not say this. It doesn't imply this. We are saved by faith, correct? Okay, so we're saved by faith. Does our lack of love remove our faith? Does he do a faithectomy? You know, we take the faith out. You didn't love him taking your faith away. You're not saved anymore. No. Verse 11 says, he hates his brother again. The hater and the one hated are brothers. Brothers in Christ. They're both Christians. And hatred of another Christian is a sure sign, listen, that you are not abiding in Christ. There's a problem. There's a spiritual problem in your life. And that's what John's trying to tell us in this book. Listen, people, you want to abide in fellowship with God. You want to know joy unspeakable. 
It comes from fellowship. You want to know how you're having fellowship? Well, you're keeping the commandments. You don't hate your brothers or sisters in Christ. No matter what they've done to you. And that's what people will say. Well, you don't know what they did to me. I don't care what they did to you. You're supposed to love like Christ. You know what they did to Christ? You know what they did to him? That's, how we're, that's the standard that we love. We're to forgive one another. How? As Christ forgave us. That's the standard. That's a high standard. Again, this is supernatural, people. This is something that, you know, it takes us living in dependence upon the Spirit for it ever to come about. All right? So the hater, the one hated, they're both brothers. John puts this emphasis on loving one another because the Bible ranks love as the highest virtue. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. The greatest of these is love. Now, hopefully you see the importance of love. All right, that's why he's stressing this about loving your brother. Now, before we quit, though, this morning, let me make sure we're on the same page here on what love is, because it's really important you understand love if you're going to try to do love, right? We need to define love biblically, not culturally. Our culture is an absolute mess, okay? It uses the word love to mean just about everything except what the Bible means by it. <clears throat> Culturally, if you mention the word love, people think of a warm, fuzzy feeling, being nice, okay? That's not biblical love. That's not what the Bible talks about. What is biblical love? What does the Bible say about it? What? Well, the Greek language is rich in synonyms. It, words often have shades of meaning that English just doesn't possess. Let me give you some different Greek words for love. They all use these words. They all mean love, but they have different meanings, all right? And that's what we have to understand here. Four different words for love in Greek. There's the word storge, all right? This word speaks of family love. It's used to love of a parent for a child, love of a child towards a parent. Storge, love. Then there's the word eros. Anybody know what eros is? It's erotic love, okay? Sensual love, it's what you feel when you fall in love. Or we could say fall in lust, probably more accurately. It's a passionate attraction toward the opposite sex. You know how many times that word's mentioned in the Bible? None. None. That Greek word is not used in the Scripture. Okay? Then there's the word phileo. You know what this word comes from, right? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Okay? So this phileo means brotherly love. It's affection, friendship, a feeling of tenderness towards somebody else. It's used to describe a man's closest and nearest two friends. Well, John doesn't use any of those words here. The word he uses is agapao. All right? This Greek word was rarely used in Greek literature prior to the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word agape took on a special meaning. It was used by the New Testament writers to designate a volitional love. All right? That's what's so important about agape. Agape is a verb, it's action. You can't just sit there and love. You have to do something, okay? And it doesn't matter how you feel. You say, I just don't feel some kind of way about it. That's not what it's about. If you love them, you will meet their needs. You will sacrifice for them. It's not dealing with your feelings, people. You do love. God so loved the world that He felt really wonderful about it. No, He gave. That defines love. 
Love is giving. It's action. You have to do something to love. It's not an emotional thing. It's a self-sacrificial love, a love naturally expressed by divinity, but not so easily by humanity. All right? And it seems as though the early Christian church took the word out of its obsoleteness and made it characteristic word for biblical love, for God's kind of love. It's not a feeling. It's an action. I'm not saying you're not going to have feelings. You'll have feelings. But you might phileo someone. That's fine. You might storge. You still have to agape. You have to love them. Action. God loved. God gave. All right? The command to love one another appears at least a dozen times in the New Testament. Because it's important. We're family. That's why there's so much emphasis on forgiveness. We have to forgive each other. You know what? Because in a family, you're going to hurt each other. You're going to make each other mad. You're going to do it. So you have to have forgiveness in a family for it to function. To live a life of loving others is to live in fellowship with Yahweh. Because God is love. So if you're going to be in the light, if you're going to be in fellowship with Him, you're going to love. It's to abide in Him. It's to walk as He walked. 2.6 He that saith he abideth in Him ought to walk even as He walked. So He walked in love. If I abide in Christ, I'm going to walk in love. If you hate a fellow Christian, for any reason, and I can't wait for you to get before the Lord and explain to Him why you hate it. You know, oh Lord, you, you'll understand this one. You know what they did to me? Did they crucify you? Did they whip you and take you out and put you on a cross? Put nails in your hands and feet and let you hang there until you were dead? If you hate a fellow Christian, you're not walking as Christ walked. And listen, you're in the darkness. And if you're in the darkness, you're in danger of stumbling. You're in danger of a lot of spiritual things that can happen to you which can relate over into the physical because of your sin. All right, there's medical things that talk about hatred and the damaging effects it has on the body. Because God doesn't want us to hate. He wants us to love. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it's easy to read, maybe even easy to expound, but not so easy to live. We realize, Lord, that we can't do any of this thing apart from your grace and your power in our lives. So I ask, Lord, that we'd come to a place in our lives of surrender, of dependency upon you, that we look to you to give us the power, the ability to love as you called us to. Lord, I pray that we would display the new commandment in our lives. That we would be accurate image bearers of you. And people look at us, they'd see you, Father. Lord, that's a heavy responsibility that we're to bear you to the world. May we do it accurately, Lord. Father, I pray that we would desire the joy of fellowship so much that this would be our emphasis, our goal, our, our desire, our motivation, Lord, to live in a way that brings glory to you and joy in our life. Thank you, Lord, for your eternal patience with us. Amen. Anthony? I like it because it's encouraging. Because, you know, 
I guess no matter what, how much you hurt or hurting someone, um, I mean, and, to, and, and for, and for you, that person to feel that, right? So I just ask myself, this is a good question to ask myself, well, what, what, who, do I think that I'm more, my feelings are more important than Christ's feelings, what he was feeling when he went through all of that? So it's encouraging for me to think about that uh, when I'm not agreeing or, or I don't want to say hate because, you know, people, even through my, people just, you know, just uh, don't come hate, you know, out of eye all the time, but uh, so, it's encouraging to me to, to hear that and know that because it has given me something to work on, you know, and it, and it, and it gives me hope, no matter how I'm feeling. And if, when you're feeling something, you know, yeah, I'm fine instantly. <laughs> you feel it, you right. know, but, but I'm just saying, I have to learn how to, as soon as I feel like I'm hurt or the person I'm hurting, because even if you're hurting somebody, that still hurts you, you know, so it's encouraging to me to, to know that you feel that. You know, it, it just it just gives me the sense of just keep on trying, just keep on, you know. Well, that's what it's about, brother. Yeah, just keep yeah. on, because we're all going to have those, you know. And the thing, you know, when someone disagrees with us, you know, it can get real ugly, depending on how strong you feel about something. You know, really. I mean, if you think that carpet ought to be brown and they think it ought to be green, man, that's where it does fighting. You know, I mean, stupid as that is, but you know, but. Uh, that's the thing. When when someone disagrees with you on something, it can you know, depending on how much that affects your life, it can really get to a point of, you know, hatred and ugliness. And I mean, you've seen it. You 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 know, I was watching a video on a Trump rally the other day, and there's people and they're out there fist fighting, you know, because they just disagree on you know, and so they're fighting each other. And I say, here's hatred. They don't even know these people, but they hate them because they disagree with them on something. And that's how we, you know, that's how we are. Something I feel strongly about, you disagree, ends up hatred and darkness. Stan? When you were in verse 2-7 uh, and you said, uh, you know, brother, I looked at the, King, the New King James and it said brethren, but then it had a footnote on the bottom saying beloved. So. The New King Jimmy put the footnote in there. Yeah. Yeah, because the strong. See, here's the thing, people. We've, you know, um, through Qumran, you know, we found a lot of new manuscripts, and you know, we learn. We're learning things, and you got to catch up with the data. But you know, people who were, you know, believe something in the past based on what the scripture said. Now we're learning. Well, look, we got more evidence to something. So, yeah, you you learn, you grow. Anybody else? Questions, comments. I know, and that's, you're, you're right, Sharon, that's what we think of. We think of, well, there's a lot of darkness in our world. Well, think of what the world was like before Christ, okay, without the light at all. All right, now we have the light. We're to shine in the midst of darkness. And you know what? The darker the room, the brighter a light gets, you know? It dispels darkness. And we're called to be light so we can take the light of Christ to the world that is in darkness. But it, it has to be through our love for one another. And again, my, when you're passionate about something, there tends to be strong emotions and it could end up being hatred real quick. So that's why he's saying, look, you can't hate your brother. You just can't do it. Whether it be on the highway or in the church, okay? 
We, are, we have such an entitlement mentality in this country that we think we own the roads. You know? Well, we just about pay for them, but I know that. But you know, <laughs> other people pay for them too, so they get to drive on them too. And uh, it's such a, you know, such a source of irritation, it seems like, for Americans. Clint? Yeah. Yeah, to stay home, you'd help the problem, right? <laughs> we complain about everything because we're Americans, and that's what we're supposed to do, right? Because I mean, yeah, we got everything. We got, you know, we're the we're the envy of the world, and yet we complain about everything we have. And you don't you don't understand this until you bring someone in from another country or talk to someone from another country, like having Gennady here. You know, it was such an eye opener for me. You know, I mean, just, oh, Jeff, we weren't in the car like 10 minutes, I think. You know, picking him up from the airport, heading down the road, and he goes, are all your roads like this? And I'm like, like what? This is nice. I'm like, pretty much. He goes, and you don't like your government? <laughs> and I said, it's all relative, Gennady. It's all relative, okay? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah, Gennady's from the Ukraine, so it's, it's a little bit different over there, you know. Um.